Consumer Focus with Martin Newman. Hello and welcome to Consumer Focus, bringing you expert advice and opinions on customer service and the great British high street. My name is Martin Newman and I am the Consumer Champion. I've worked in commerce for more than 35 years and I am absolutely dedicated to championing the consumer and helping businesses to develop the best strategies for their customers. Today, I am privileged to be joined by Stephen Robertson, who is the CEO of the Big Issue Foundation. In his work against homelessness and rough sleeping, he's had responsibility for a chain of 100 charity stores and mail-order businesses, as well as a training business primarily focused on housing professionals. Alongside of this, Stephen helped to found and ultimately chaired the professional body that represents the majority of charity retailers in the UK, which is called the Association of Charity Shops. Stephen is a trustee of the homeless healthcare charity London Pathway. He's a trustee of Trade, which is a charity committed to protecting the environment and reducing world poverty through recycling and campaigning. At home and chair of the board of trustees of Shoreditch Town Hall Trust. My goodness, how do you fit it all in? <laughs> <laughs> Sounds terribly worthy, Martin. <laughs> well, it is very worthy, and uh, I'm, and I dare say you're very passionate about it, or you you wouldn't have pursued that uh, career in the first instance. Thank you so much for joining me. It's a complete pleasure, Martin. Very nice to be here. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Tell me, what inspired you in the first place to get involved in the charity sector? Completely and utterly truthfully, it was uh, chance and drift. Um, right. I started out my career, if you remember, in uh, Our Price Records, the music retailer. I certainly do. Absolutely. Yes, so, I'm old enough to remember <laughs> exactly, not both record does. stores and Our Price. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yes, they used to have a fantastic internal promotion policy, which um, net result, because they expanded so quickly, meant mm -hmm. that if you could sit up without dribbling, you stood a chance of being put in charge of something, uh, which, um, fortunately, um, I could do both. And um, when I came out of that as a retail area manager, when it was finally owned by WH Smiths, yeah. Yep. I was made redundant and then I did the classic thing when you're not working which was thinking I was very busy looking at newspapers and right. deciding what to make for lunch where my uh, partner said I really ought to get myself a job at some point or another rather than just sit around yeah. and uh, feeling slightly sorry for myself I was in the local Indian restaurant getting a takeaway curry and there was an advert for Marie Curie Cancer Care looking right. for a retail um, area manager right. so I applied and I was very uh, fortunate enough to be employed Serendipity then Indeed in fact it was at the time when charity fundraising was overly reliant on legacy income. It was the recession, so sadly the same number of people were dying, mm -hmm. but the value of their estates were left. So the smarter charities were looking at other ways of expanding their revenue streams. Right. And um, so charity shops obviously was one. And the old-fashioned model was if you expressed an interest in something, you were put in charge. It's yeah. like, I think we should have some posters. And yes. So you're, you're in charge of marketing. But my boss, Gail, was the former operations director at Mothercare. And ah, so right, they were okay. employing retailers to help expand their retail yeah. shops. And yeah. that's in the end how I transitioned across with my skill set. Got you. I think I'm right in saying, correct me if I'm wrong, that, that the big issue foundation, I mean, it, it, it is charitable, but at the end of the day, it's a business. Absolutely. The, that, it's split really into yeah. the, the big issue business there is an asset locked social enterprise uh, yeah. nearly 30 years old right um set up on based upon uh, an idea that Gordon Ruddick founder of the body shop yeah. experienced in New York where he was overwhelmed by the number of homeless people on the streets yeah. um asking for money 
buddy, can you spare a dime? Yeah. And uh, a guy sold him something called Street News. And so rather than just asking for money, Gordon realised he was entering into a commercial transaction. He paid for something, something to read in return. When he came back to the UK, he funded and helped uh, John Bird, Lord John Bird of Notting Hill, no less, to establish the Big Issue magazine in the UK on that basis of giving homeless people an opportunity to work. Yep. And the Big Issue Foundation was established as a charity a couple of years after that to help uh, deal with the issues that might have made people become a Big Issue vendor or arisen as a result of their experiences of homelessness and exclusion. Great. Thank you for the background there. That really helps to see the whole picture of of what makes the Big Issue. Um, Tell me, I mean, obviously you've got incredible experience of charity shops. What makes a good charity shop or a charitable proposition like the Big Issue? What makes it good and effective ultimately? Oh, that's such a big question. I think... Probably for charity retail, it's probably the kind of obvious things that one would often think about retail stores. So it's very much about product. Yeah. Uh, the ability to reuse, recycle and choose what you're going to do on an individual basis to appeal to your regular customers is a significant thing. So it's about product. It's very much about uh, the people. Yep. The charity shop sector has the largest working volunteer population in the UK. So it's hugely engaging with people. So it's yep. always about the diversity of people working there. Yeah. And it's really about the locations and the size of course and um, in many instances they keep a declining high street going yes indeed well well, let's hope the high street's not going to decline much further and it's going to come back but you're absolutely right I mean they have and they they give consumers a reason also to continue to to visit the high street which has to be a positive thing. Absolutely. And I mean, because each thing is individual, it's a daily visit. So yeah, what more could you want as a retailer yeah, yeah, than people yeah. coming out fresh every day? Yeah, You've headed up over 100 stores uh, previously for Shelter. So we've talked about the what, what it takes to be successful, I guess, as a charity shop. What are the main challenges facing charity stores or charity shops today? What are the main challenges they're facing into? I think probably the most significant one is the dramatic increase in very cheap textiles. So the value of, you know, the throwaway culture, wear it once and throw it away is significant. And I think um, that presents real challenges in the reuse space because things aren't necessarily made to be reused. So that that in itself, I think, is, is significant because of the size and number of the stores and clearly the value on something now well, if you can go out to a, a well-known high street store and get an sure. outfit for 15 quid mm. say then actually trying to achieve that value in a charity retail store of something that when it's second hand from that yeah. becomes harder so you've therefore got more of a volume business but that, that's likely to change isn't it or or is it because we're moving more and more into the circular economy and obviously social responsibility is very much top of mind for consumers and although I'm not convinced we've seen a huge change in behaviour yet. I do believe that's coming. And I think you can see the, you know, even with the fast fashion brands now really having to think about or they've been making commitments to becoming fully sustainable, you know, in in the products that they produce. Will that then have a more, contrary to what you just said, will that then have a positive effect? I or, think or... I think it will. Um, it's probably about the the timing and the balance. I think yeah. people increasingly are conscious of their their footprint in the widest sense yeah. of the word, and therefore are looking for purpose and products yeah. in the things that they can do, in the yeah. messages that they can pass on, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I mean, it still is true that a million tons of clothing enters landfill in our country every year with an approximate value of about £1.6 billion. So if you think of all the 
oil, the water, the yeah. people, everything that goes into production of that clothing to be disposed, we've still got a long way got to long go way. in terms of, go, yeah. absolutely, mm. to change the balance. But mm. I think people are increasingly aware of that and therefore we can only be hopeful that they'll follow it through. Yeah. I'm sure they will. I'm sure I do. Th I do feel that we're on a on a journey, um, yes. and it doesn't feel like the momentum's going to go away yes. anytime soon. It's only going to pick up. Tell me, many many charity shop workers are are volunteers. How do you how do you make sure they're trained um, in working in a consumer facing industry? Because presumably they come from all sorts of backgrounds. So how does that work? I mean, it will probably be very different in each organisation in terms of how they... How they deal with that. The most important thing that everyone would really understand is that volunteers are, of course, your unpaid workforce. Yeah. Um, probably, in many instances, were people to be paying, being paid a wage for what they were doing, those retail operations might not make a profit. Yeah. So the intent is always to communicate effectively mission, purpose, yeah. value, yeah. Um, help people see and understand what's being achieved as a result of their labour. Yeah. Um, and clearly, there is a social value for people in volunteering and interacting with the public and yeah. building up a network of friends yep. etc but the most important thing in in the first instance is to make sure that people understand why they're there and what they're doing it yeah. for to thank them for it and then to help people um explore their retail skills yeah and we all know what a good retail experience is or not and yes. what good customer service indeed, is indeed. or is not and the charity retail environment fortunately is a lot more um relaxed shall we say so it's by definition more conversational sure. people have more time they're taking time to look so yeah. so i i think it's a combination of mission and a good shop manager training people up yeah i was going to say because you know you at the end of the day you obviously still have a requirement to manage people, you know, even although they're there and they're giving you their time and their effort and, and everything else free, uh, they've still got a job to do. Absolutely. And I mean, you don't go out and buy a pair of trousers because you support a certain charity and you can't do them up, but you like that charity so much. You're still out shopping for yourself. Yes. So to have a good retail experience and keep you yeah. in the premises while you sort through for something that does fit you yeah. is a really valuable way of making sure you can make a return. So you've got to keep people in your shop. Indeed, indeed. The Big Issue is famous for offering a second chance to people on the street. How do you help your, I don't, what, what do you, first of all, what do you call the people, you know, the people who are selling The Big Issue? We call them Big Issue Vendors. I was going to say yes, vendors, that's what vendors. I thought, but I didn't want to make, make an assumption. So how do you, how do you help those vendors gain the confidence, if you like, for such a sale-based role? Because presumably very few of them have probably done any, any formal selling in the past. That's a very good question. Um, I think the first thing to sort of understand about people's motivation for coming to The Big Issue yeah. is that, and I'll condense this to make it fairly simple, so it's not necessarily always true, but the primary reason why people come to The Big Issue is to get money, to earn money, in a way that isn't committing crime, isn't begging, and so on and so forth. So that that's the driver. You might have a difficult tenancy situation in your life. You may have a number of other things going on and you may have gone to other organisations mm -hmm. to get some help with that or you may not. But when you approach the big issue, first and foremost, you're there to earn cash. So that's the first thing. It's a financial inclusion project. Yeah. The second thing that's hard is that what technically you are when you get hold of your first free copies of the magazine, because each magazine costs you later on £1.25 and you sell it for £2.50, but you get some free magazines at the beginning and your job is to turn those 48 pages of A4 paper back into cash. Yeah. But when you hold up a copy of the magazine, the cover, yeah. which is a piece of A4 paper, it's 
not scary. It's not a gun. It's not yeah. a knife. It, but it is a mirror to what people think about homelessness. So yes. you're there as a person trying to earn a living and to the people that see you, you're a, a homeless person and you may be worthy of my disdain, my distrust. I might think you're the architect of your own decline mm. and um, that you're a lazy scumbag. Mm. And I might tell you. So the hardest thing for you as a big issue vendor is to develop the resilience to do the toughest face-to-face -face sales job in the land because yeah. you're there with good purpose yeah. to earn money and yeah. to work. Yeah. And, honestly as well. And honestly, yeah. absolutely, and completely legally. It's yeah. the 1860s Peddlers Act, which means you can sell a printed publication on the streets of our country without a street trader's right. license. Right. So you're there, legit trading, and you have to develop that resilience. Now, the first thing that we will do is our very best to accompany people in those first few weeks and to check in with them and to team them up with other vendors who are more experienced to help them deal with the setbacks and the knockbacks. If you've been, imagine, ignored for two and a half hours and the first person that speaks to you says, get a job, mate, yeah. it can be quite tough. Oh, so actually building up that resilience is a really important part of yeah. the training. What I'd also say is that when somebody puts £2.50 into your homeless hand, it yeah. feels like £2,500. Yeah. The validation and the excitement mm. that you get as an individual from actually effectively trading, despite the things that people might be thinking about you, yeah. is enormous. So with all the sort of stresses and strains, the upside of beginning to get it going is a real motivator. That's a really, really great point and a real eye-opener for me, what you were just saying there about, you know, it makes perfect sense, but, you know, how people perceive your vendors who are selling the, the big issue. I mean, I would have thought when, you know, if you compared that to the increasing number of homeless people, well, whether they are homeless or not, and that's the question, the increasing number of people you see, for example, in the streets of London who are begging. Mm -hmm. And my instinct is, and I could be wrong here, but my instinct is I would have thought that most people just walk, going about their day would perceive those people in a different light to those who are selling the big issue? Or or do you feel that there's still a lack of awareness of the fact that, for example, you've vetted people, you know that they're genuine, you know they have a genuine issue and that's why they're doing it and and they're being trained. And, you know, it's a, it's a completely different, in my mind, it's a completely different proposition to somebody begging on the street. But ultimately what you're saying is they, they often fall foul of the same sort of perception that people have of, as, as you just rightly said a minute ago, whether they show them disdain or they think they should be getting a job or whatever it is. It's, to to answer your point, I would say that um, the word homeless, if you like, it's, it's multidimensional. It means so much to so many yeah. different people. For I wouldn't comment on the legitimacy or not of, of beggars in, in general, sure. but it is certainly true um, for many a vendor that somebody will walk past them and hand over £20 to a beggar yeah. and won't buy a big issue for £2.50, yeah. which is less than the price of a cup of coffee. Yeah. So there's all sorts of things going on out there. And, yeah. and I think the thing that vendors will come to understand very, very quickly is the, the complexity of what people think, how quickly they move to a judgment yeah. um, and how testing that can be. And I think the, the whole space is massively um, open to fear, to prejudice. Yeah. Um, quite a lot of what's said about homeless people and said to our vendors is close to hate crime. Yeah. So you are on the tough end. And, and in a sense, 
in hard times, minorities, history has a way of telling us that minorities get persecuted, yes, characterised yeah. and, and stereotyped. And that that is um, a tragedy because in many respects it creates the impression that the problem is unresolvable. Yeah that it's inevitable yeah. and it's um, to do with individuals' own choices, whereas yeah. in many instances it's to do it's with the things impact of we what do as many a things that could have happened in their life. Yeah, yes, and what we could be doing in society of. to change yeah, things. Absolutely. And tell me something, um, how, do, you know, how do you encourage them or how do the vendors get the balance right between you know, not being too forceful or, you know, because sometimes, you know, you get, you'd come across vendors who have got amazing personalities and they're very funny and they're very vibrant and charismatic versus others who are really quiet as a mouse and don't say a word. And I suppose my fear there is most people just walk by them, the latter, and probably they don't get an awful lot of engagement. So where's the balance and how do you, do you give them any instruction or training around that? We have some fairly sort of basic rules. Yeah which is that um, you need to be uh, in a reasonable enough condition to actually be at work, not really drunk or any other, anything else in that sense. Sure. So it's the same same as most people who go to work for a living. Um, and that you can't run after people down the street. Right, OK. <laughs> OK, so, I mean, and that's it. And the, the, the real simplicity of the model is that, that you're at work for yourself. Yeah. So each magazine that costs you £1.25 you have to sell on for £2.50. If you decide to go home early and you've got 10 magazines left, that's £12.50 off your bottom line. So you're budgeting and you're thinking about your finances, number one. And number two, of course, you've got to develop the skills to get people to put their money in your hand. So you need to develop those social skills. And because it's your business and it's your money, there's an element in that which is just pure and factually true that you're employed... For yourself so you have to make some of those efforts and some people will get very very good mm-hmm. at engaging with the public sure. and if you're regular um you turn up for your pitch as we call it your the space that you're working timely on many a day then people will get more confidence because they see you regularly yep. they'll begin yeah, sure. to talk to you yep. and as some people begin to talk to you other people will see that so the longer you've been established and the bigger your network of customers, the more it will grow and the more your confidence grows. And actually, if you think about it, it's rare to stop and just have a chat in our society these days. You're all very busy and locked (laughs) into our phones. Whereas vendors are in the same spot and often build up a network of people who just like to have a conversation. So the social element of it becomes a really important important bit. And in that respect, whilst the money is life-changing, it's also your customers. Yeah who change you because yeah. that's that customer engagement and that sure. resilience yeah. is the thing that gives you that confidence to think actually if I can do run this business maybe it's time that I can deal maybe it's time to I don't know get back in contact with a family member I haven't yeah, seen sure, for a decade sure, or whatever sure. those things might be sure. of your own choice but the confidence you get from knowing that you can sustain yourself mm. through a network of customers mm-hmm. is life-changing just just kind of segueing on from that have you ever as a business I don't know whether you ever do this but do you ever provide opportunities if you, you know, if you come across, if you have a vendor, for example, who's really great in whatever capacity that is, whether it's they're a great salesperson, a brilliant communicator, you know, whatever it happens to mm-hmm. be and found a pathway for them within the organisation? Have they gone on? Has, have there been any vendors that have gone on to take on, you know, office based roles or other roles within the business? Absolutely. Um, I mean, I suppose just to contextualise everything as well, because some people listening might have the perception that uh, the big issue itself is a huge organisation. Yeah. There's an average probably at the moment about 1,300 vendors across the UK. Right. 
within the Big Issue magazine, um, the Asset Lock Social Enterprise, including the journalists the, um, and the backroom team and the frontline team, there's 75 people. And within the Big Issue Foundation, the charitable service part, yeah. my part of the operation, there's 25. Right. So there's 100. Yep. Versus 1,300. Yeah, but because yeah. you see vendors everywhere, the assumption is that it must be huge. Yes. And it's unique in that it's um, defined by the people that are doing the job now whilst we're yeah. having this conversation. To answer your question, yes. Um, we have, uh, in fact, one of my closest colleagues um, started out life in front of the counter mm-hmm. and now um, is a very important part of my service team. Right. Uh, and we have a number of people who've come through the organisation at different times and people with lived experience. frequently have a credibility and an authenticity that can really help engage with people who are yet to engage. Absolutely. So we we were, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm proud to say that that, that those um, are merit-based posts as well. So this yeah. is not us thinking, yeah, no, oh, it would be nice to do that for somebody. Yes. No, these are people. They've earned it, basically. Absolutely. Yeah. These yeah. people are 100% um, employable in the job that they're doing, and that is fantastic. Sorry, I was going to yes. ask you, uh, just ask you a slightly different question, because yes. I've heard you mention it a couple of times, and I think it'd just be good to know exactly what the definition is. You've talked about being a value-locked social enterprise. Yes, asset What locked. is that? Asset-locked, sorry. Asset. It social it, enterprise. It means that the magazine, the money that is made by the Big Issue magazine, is reinvested invested into the business, reinvested in into pursuing the mission and looking for other opportunities to dismantle poverty and create opportunities. It is not coming out in the sense of dividends to shareholders. Yeah, so, sure. so whilst it's run like All the values retained within the business. Absolutely. Uh, and uh, as a charity, obviously, we also go out to market to raise charitable funds, yep. which we also invest in into that activity to help move Big Issue Vendors' yeah. lives forward. Many low salary or zero contract employees uh, facing London rents and prices, and this would apply to various cities around the UK, but probably uh, heightened in London, you know, facing huge London rents and prices are at risk of suddenly becoming homeless if they lose their jobs. What would your message be to employers who have financially vulnerable staff? Oh, gosh, that's a very good question. And it, and it's it's... Quite complex. I mean, in in the first instance, the sort of concept uh, of um, the working uh, homeless population is not something yet that's really understood or particularly discussed. Um, so you could be going to I don't know, taking your family to a well-known pizza restaurant for a meal, um, and not know that the people, some of the people there that are serving you, will be sleeping in a car park that mm-hmm. night. Yeah, and their employers might not always know that as well so there is the first thing i think that really needs to be out there is a much greater insight into uh, what the situations of people are like i think it's quite hard for a business to move its margins to just compensate for a lack of affordable social housing Mm -hmm. that's a wider challenge Challenge, and you know increasingly it feels that London as our sort of capital is is becoming somewhat like the sort of Paris version where it's concentric circles of wealth and the wealthier you are, the closer you live to the centre and the Mm -hmm. poorer you are, the further out you go. And that takes decades to change, absolutely decades to change. But at the moment, we have um, a massive lack of affordable social housing. We do not have anything uh, like a welfare state that exists to support people. So if you're a hard-working nurse 
um, trying to make a living in London, it's going to be hard, let alone mm. if you're working, um, you know, in retail environment where the pay is often yes, lower. Indeed. It's it's a it's a multifaceted problem. It's something we should be think, expecting the mayor's office to be dealing with. Mm. We should be dealing with with our own politicians. It needs yeah. to be a bigger noise here. Just on the point you made there about, which is actually interesting, that there could be many, many people working in different retail and consumer-facing environments, restaurants, pubs, yep. clubs, retailers, who are actually homeless and the employer may not know that. I would imagine there would be a prejudice to some extent if you were an employer and somebody was applying for a job and you you were of no fixed abode yeah. or fixed address. Um, would, would I be right? Would yes, I, I, I would imagine people would... Uh naturally associate that with you know probably free associate that first not with um necessarily a lack of money but yeah. uh, maybe you know some lifestyle issues or some problems with uh drinks and drugs or whatever those things might be sure. rather than the fact that actually they're in, um, working with somebody who's living in extreme poverty yeah so i think some may feel that that person is likely to be more absent than others yeah. because they'll free associate with the problems they think they might have rather than the challenges they really face. It's we, hard to break out of that circle. I was going to say, how do we change that? How do we change that mindset? What can be done, do you think? There are plenty of good examples in the social enterprise sector mm -hmm. at the moment. If you take something like Change Please, the uh, coffee uh, shop chain that's become incredibly successful with a little Lambretta uh, Change Please vans mm -hmm. that you see around. There's one outside London Bridge, for yep. example. Um, the, these are businesses set up creating employment opportunities for people with extreme experiences of homelessness, paying right. them the London living wage, yeah. but also giving them some solid assistance in terms of securing housing, learning right. how to do that. So there are there are good models out there, and it's yeah. really I would encourage everyone to look to the social enterprise sector because you don't, in the same way as you don't go and buy a pair of trousers that don't fit you because you you like the like the charity, Change Please sells really good quality coffee yeah, yeah, yeah and that's the driver but the the usb is that the people you're buying it from have lived experience of homelessness and yeah. are working their way out of that in a, yeah. in a supportive environment and i think it's that supportive environment that needs to be explored on a bigger scale i think there are i, I totally agree i mean i think but that, you know there are examples of other commercial entities that are certainly that have a purpose or you know or, or certainly have a a strong degree of social responsibility i mean one that springs to mind is timson mm -hmm. you know the the shoe care yeah. and key cutting retailer uh you know they give opportunities to ex-prisoners yeah and you know who again who would normally find it very difficult to get a job absolutely they give them that opportunity to re-establish themselves and you know in gainful employment so there must be opportunities here for for brands who have a conscience there are and and, and some of them purpose. some of them um i i think are good um in that they don't overshout about it but they yeah. work hard at it but so you can take somewhere like pret for example yes. but Monje yeah. have a very firm commitment and um through their foundation also fund some other projects but right. it's 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 a purpose for the organisation rather than just a marketing exercise. No, sure. And I think the same with Tim's is actually they do it first and foremost because that's what they want to do. I agree. I agree. But what I would say is, though, and, and I, I can understand why they don't want to necessarily shout about it because they don't want to be seen to be capitalising on it. But then the flip, the, the flip side of that is the more it's communicated, mm. the more it will seek to change people's opinions. Yes. 
and you know that that I think it's a virtue. It becomes a virtuous circle. Then I think you're entirely right. And if you look at sort of how some large organisations now are approaching their sort of CSR agendas, yeah, you can you that you can tell the difference between those that see it as central to mission and purpose yes. to create value and social value for their employees, not not just because of the, the obvious gains for society from that, but because it's a recruitment and retention tool. Totally. That people are choosing between organisations as young people to work for. Exactly. They want to work for a brand. Well, 100%. I yeah. mean, my kids at the end of the day, I've got two daughters, 18 and 23. Well, I mean, the younger ones at university, but, you know, they, they want to work for brands that have a purpose. Yes. 100%. They won't go and work for somebody unless they feel that that's part of the mission, if you like. And I think I think that's a really exciting thing um, about the, the sort of future because... Yeah. I agree. The idea that um, you you can walk to work as you can in London and see a lot of really distressing and disturbing things. You can be in a lovely corporate environment, go out at lunchtime, see more distressing things, go back yeah. into your corporate environment, then go home and see them again. The idea that you can turn your mind off whilst you're at work in those bits in between isn't right. No. And actually for the organisation to you know, energise that and encourage totally. that creates creativity, totally. all sorts of things. Totally, and it's a feel-good factor. Yes, absolutely. You're creating a community yeah. and, and you have a community spirit and, and connection. Yeah. Just continuing on from that theme about, you know, brands being socially responsible. I mean, I, I have a particular, you talked about CSR, I mean, I, it's just me. I'm not a fan of what I call BS bingo, you know, buzzwords that we use in the industry. So for me, the whole issue with CSR is that brands talk about corporate social responsibility. And the minute the word corporate mm. is included in that, then I, in my mind, yeah. it's it's a tick box exercise and it's not something that's really resonating and at the heart of the organisation. So I prefer to think of it as social responsibility. And I think that what that also engenders is rather than just thinking about the environment or the impact of the product and recycling and how you look after your suppliers, but it's that broader sense of, you know, when we were talking there a minute ago about employees and giving people opportunities who, who wouldn't otherwise you know, have those opportunities, yes. whether that's the example of Timson, you know, giving a job to people who have been in jail and giving them the chance to re-establish themselves or whether it's giving opportunities to people that don't actually have a fixed address. Yes. But to your point, you know, it's, it's at no fault of their own that they found themselves in those circumstances. That's what's, that, to my mind, that's what's, being socially responsible is. I think I think that's entirely right, and and the, and the word corporate does automatically make you kind of freeze up slightly and think this is going to be awkward and embarrassing and yeah. and and a, and a bit straight. We developed, um, I'd like to say strategically, but um, it was purely by chance uh, some activity that in fact has slid very nicely into the learning and development space because some years ago we had. Uh, a volunteer day from HSBC Retail Bank. Mm -hmm. um, we were very excited because we didn't have a corporate relationship like that, but yeah. we also couldn't think of a thing that we were possibly going to do because yeah. our vendors didn't have rooms that people could paint. Yeah. So we thought the smart thing to do was to take them out to Covent Garden to meet some of our vendors because their vendors are great and we'll sort of see how it goes and talk a bit and make lunch happen and see what goes on. And while they were there, they basically said, look, we're the best retail bankers in the world. We've had the best training. We can sell mortgages to people that have come in to get 50 quid. Yeah. We'll work with your vendors for free to give them the benefit of our sales training on the street so that they're financially better off at the end of the day. Brilliant. So it was a comedy conversation with yeah. vendors around the corner of uh, Marks and Spencers, yeah. as it was, who wants to work with a bunch of bankers today. And they're like, well, <laughs> I'll make a laugh. Let's have yeah. a go. But of course, as soon as the bankers put on their red jackets and held up 
copy of the big issue, the A4 piece of paper, the mirror that it is. They weren't professional high street bankers. They were um, lazy, scumbag, homeless people who were worthy of people's disdain, uh, were insulted, ignored, people crossed the road. They couldn't sell a thing. Is that right? What was striking as the day went on and as we were doing the feedback at the end of the day was that people began to reflect and some really quite emotionally that some of the attitudes, some of the things that had been said to them that day had been attitudes and things they had held and said themselves. themselves. And further to that, as having set out to provide sales training to homeless people, they had received sales training from homeless people. And so this was a game changer for them. And we've developed that program now. brilliant. Uh, But it sits in the learning and development space. It's Mm -hmm. part of the induction program of a number of big organisations, sales-based and and beyond. And it also shows how purpose can go beyond social responsibility. Actually, yeah. these were people learning in a very lived experience way certain things that they could translate at work. Mm. If you're a lawyer and you've got to convince a judge of your case, try selling a copy of The Big Issue first. <laughs> it's absolutely brilliant. I mean, it really is. It's so obvious. I mean, you know, I can I can see how that would have ended up. It actually ended up being the reverse. It ended up being yes. your vendors training the absolutely. HSBC bankers to yes. do a better job. Purely um, by chance again, a bit like yeah, no, ending course, in the charity sector. Course, somebody suggested course. it and it was like, yeah. that's the best idea someone's <laughs> ever had. <laughs> that is the best idea since sliced bread, I have to say. <laughs> Stephen, it's been, it's been really enlightening for me. If I was to ask you to leave our audience with one thing, one thing to just think about with regards to the big issue, what would it be? What would you say to them? I would say that when you're walking down the street and you see a big issue vendor with a magazine, yep. remember that that's a person who's at work. Mm-hmm. Um, say hello. Yep. Even say no thank you if you don't want it. But hopefully buy a copy and take it and read it and enjoy it. But remember that person that you're seeing is hard at work and they may have had a bad day up until that moment when they've seen you. So yeah. say hello, see how they're doing. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, I have to tell you, you've definitely opened my eyes. And although I'll hold my hands up and I'll say I have bought a few copies of The Big Issue over the years, but I've walked away and walked past far more people than I would ever have even thought about engaging with and I don't think I'll ever do that again. So you've certainly converted me <laughs> um, and I'm sure you, I'm sure a few people that will be listening to this as well will probably feel similarly. So I'm very grateful to your time. I'm very grateful for gaining a better understanding about the big issue and, and, and what you do and, what the, and the great work you do with your vendors and, and ultimately the impact that that has on helping homeless people and very grateful to you on behalf of society for all the good that you do and and what you've done in your career and you know the retail the traditional retail industry's loss (laughs) is the charity sector's gain I think and you know you've got an amazing track record there keep doing what you're doing and thank you very much for your time today real pleasure thank you thank you for listening to Consumer Focus to me Martin Newman and my wonderful guest Stephen Robertson I hope you'll join me next time to discuss the latest in consumer concerns (laughs) 